0: My name is Owen and uh, my wife Amanda and I are here this morning and we are uh, so glad to be with you. We are good friends, uh, Kevin and Katie, great respect and, and love for them, knowing them back um, in New Orleans and from Edgewater Baptist Church, we go to church in, in, in New Orleans and we really love the, the Townsends as well, uh, Byron and Cindy and their kids and know them from New Orleans as well and, and many of you know Alan Jackson who was here a few years back and I've gotten to know Alan through doing baseball chapel with the Zephyr's Triple A team in in New Orleans and so I have a lot of respect for Alan and enjoyed getting to uh, getting to, to know him. And Edgewater, where we go to church in New Orleans and Cross Point have been on some mission trips together. And, and so it's really good to be here. And, and I'm so glad to be here and to be able to look at Colossians chapter 4, that we're just going to continue through Colossians like you all have been doing uh, for quite some time. It, it's no fun to be the substitute preacher, to show up and just, you know, pick a text because when you're the substitute, people throw airplanes at you and, you know, they make fun of you and people run out the back. Um, so it's good not to be the substitute. It's good to look at God's Word with you and continue the study that you've been doing through Colossians. It, it, it's an incredible example of what I know about this church and what I've heard about this church and your commitment to the study of God's Word that we are just going to continue with, with what you've been doing in the past. And, and also know that it, it's part of, uh, part of your commitment here that you stand with the reading of God's Word. And so if you're willing and you're able Um, I'd ask you to stand now as we read our passage from Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 2 through 6 of Colossians 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Father, we thank you for this time together. Together, We thank you for the power of your word, for the work of your spirit. God, I thank you for Crosspoint, for their commitment to doing your work in this world. God, for their commitment to your word for making the gospel of Jesus known in Baton Rouge and around the world. God, give us clear minds. Give us pure hearts as we look at your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Let me ask you a question as, you begin, as we begin. Um, have you ever been in need of a reality check? Um, some of you may look at your neighbor and know that they're in need of a reality check. But uh, have you ever been in need of a reality check? When I was growing up, I have two younger, two younger brothers, and we loved to play sports, but, but we didn't really focus on one particular sport. We were just interested in, in everything, and so we played baseball, football, basketball, golf, and across the, the street from our house, there was a tennis court, and so we would go over there in the evenings and, and take our $20 Walmart racket and, and play tennis, and most of the matches ended with somebody jumping the net. Chasing down the other person, beating them with a the racket, and that, that, was our style of, that was our style of tennis. Um, but when I was a senior in high school, I thought to myself, I've been playing tennis for quite a while now. I should enter a tournament. And so I signed up for the uh, local tennis tournament, went over there, got out there for, for the first match, and to this day I never saw the first serve that the guy hit he had a serve with topspin. My goal is to get it in the little box in the serving area. He had a serve with topspin that kicked higher than my head. And it's not that I didn't win a game that match. I barely won a point. It was it was awful. I needed a serious reality check. I had come to find out he was the number one player in the region and, and not the region of Oklahoma in, in multi-state regions that, that I was playing against. And so that was my one and only tennis tournament my whole life. But uh I was in need of a reality check. I thought I was a tennis player. I was not a tennis player. And what Paul is doing in Colossians is he is presenting Christ to these people. He is—he's never been to Colossae, but he knows that a church has been formed there. And so he's telling them what it means to follow Jesus. He's telling them what it means for Jesus to be Savior and Lord. But there's a danger here. Some of the people are being distracted from Jesus Some of the people are confused about what it means for Jesus to be Savior and Lord. And so what Paul does is in the beginning of Colossians, he establishes the reality of who Christ is and and what he came to do. And then the second half of Colossians, he gives them a reality check. He says, you say you're a follower of Jesus, you say that Jesus is Savior and Lord, let's find out if that's really the case. Let's find out what that looks like in, in your life. And so Kevin started this last week with the reality that if we say that Jesus is a big deal, if we say that Jesus is Savior and Lord, that should show up in our relationships, the people who are closest to us. If you say that you're a follower of Christ, that shows up in the way you treat your kids, in the way you treat your spouse, and the way you treat the people who work for you. And so Kevin began to explore that last week. And then we just continue to go with that in Colossians chapter 4, as Paul gives them more ways to say, if you think Jesus is a big deal, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what it looks like. So let's just pick up in verse 2. The first thing, Paul says, if you think Jesus is a big deal, if you think he's Savior and Lord, it shows up in the way you pray. How do we pray? He starts out, very beginning, devote yourselves to prayer. What does it mean to be devoted to something? What, what does it mean? It, it means you give priority to that thing. It means you give time to that thing. It means you give energy to that thing to be devoted to prayer. Now, here's the problem that, that I face, the struggle that I face. Prayer oftentimes doesn't feel like we're doing anything, does it? Prayer is that other thing. I, I, I'm a doer. I want to do something, and prayer feels like I'm just sitting, <laughs> you know, or or even worse, God forbid, I'm wasting time. I should be doing something, not praying. And Paul uses his strongest language here. He says, be devoted to prayer. Give this your utmost attention. Now, why does he say that? Why, why are we devoted to prayer? Why use that type of language? Well, the reality is, is that God has appointed people to bother him. <laughs> he wants his people to come to him. Listen to Isaiah chapter 62. You don't have to turn over there if you don't want to, but if you make a note, Isaiah chapter 62, listen to what God says. He says, verse five of Isaiah, um, actually verse six of Isaiah 62, he says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. Sounds like my kids. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. No rest. And give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. God appoints people to be devoted to prayer. It brings him joy when we're devoted to prayer because we are showing that we cannot accomplish this thing on our own. When we are devoted to prayer, it shows that what God wants to do, he will do by his power. And we are the ones who trust in him. But here's the reality. No one ever stumbles into a life of prayer. Sometimes I stumble into eating four pieces of pizza instead of three. It just happens accidentally. You don't even know how it happened, but you ate more than you planned to. Or sometimes I stumble into watching two hours of Sports Center instead of one, even though the second hour is exactly what the first hour was. Not on purpose don't even know how it happened, or, or we spend 30 minutes on Facebook and Twitter even though we don't know these people, but, but, but we stumble into it, it just accidentally happens. I've never, to this point in my life, just accidentally spent 45 minutes in prayer. I started out for three, and it morphed into 45. It, it often doesn't happen that way, does it? Paul is calling these people, he knows the battle that we face with prayer, he knows that it doesn't feel like we're doing anything, and he says... Be devoted. Give your attention to prayer because everything else will get in the way. Here's the second thing he says. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. Some translations here would say, be alert. Pay attention. Now, it's embarrassing to fall asleep while you're praying. Is it not? Um... Not that you've ever fallen asleep when you were praying, but this thing does happen to, happen to me. You're praying late at night, and you're really wanting to lay before the Lord what's going on. And the next thing you know, you wake up, and it's 3 o'clock. I um, mean, you're like, well, that didn't go as well as I planned. Um, I heard someone say, at least you fell asleep in the arms of the Lord. That never makes me feel any better. I'm still embarrassed that I, that I fell asleep praying. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Okay, he's not talking about don't fall asleep when you pray. Being alert. Being watchful is this idea of know the times. Be watchful means something big is going on. There's an enemy coming. Pay attention. We need people who pray like that. People who understand. This is what Jesus is talking about to his disciples so often. Where he says, be watchful. Know that the time is coming. Know the time you live in. And we can look around the world around us, look around at the world and say, we need to be people who are watchful. We need to be people who understand the time that we live in, and that drives our prayer because we know that we're to be devoted to prayer because of the time that we live in. We give it, we give it our attention. But here's the reality. Have you ever been been playing maybe like, a, I was going to say hide and seek, but my kids are four and two, so that's a bad, I mean, that's what we could play at home is hide and seek. Um, maybe you played like capture the flag or, or some game, where you had to put someone on, on watch and the person just made you nervous. Have you ever had somebody like you put on watch and they just pace back and forth or they play with their hands or you're like, you're not going to be a very good watchman because you're so nervous. And you're making me nervous just watching you be, be the person who's on watch. Paul has to balance this idea because when he says be watchful, understand the times, he's not saying panic. He's not saying, be watchful because we don't know what's going to happen. Because look in verse 2 what he says. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. He wants them to be watchful, to know why it's important to pray, but he also wants them to be thankful. Thankful for what? Thankful that Jesus has won the battle. (laughs) That we know how the story is going to end. There there is a battle going on. There, There is a spiritual warfare. And Paul says... To be devoted to prayer, be watchful, know the times. But this isn't the time to panic. <laughs> this is the time to be thankful. We pray, we cry out to God, not because we're scared of what's going to happen in the future, but because we're overwhelmed of, of the victory that we have in Christ. And so when we pray, we're devoted and we're watchful, but, but we're also thankful. And then go to verse 3. He says, and pray for us too, That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And then verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So our prayer, if we're making a big deal out of Jesus, our prayer should be gospel-centered. We should pray that the gospel would be spread. We sometimes devise these evangelism strategies or these outreach strategies in church prayer should be the number one the driving force of any evangelism strategy any outreach event we ever do because paul makes it very clear that unless we are devoted to prayer we miss we miss the power of the gospel going forth the best example i know of this is that the church that we're involved with in new orleans edgewater baptist church has partnered with first baptist in new orleans to begin a ministry called Inward Ministry. Um, and Inward Ministry is designed to go into the, uh, the clubs on Bourbon Street, and now some of the clubs out in, in New Orleans East, and, and to take the gospel to the, to the entertainers and the dancers and the club owners on, on Bourbon. And they've been at this for about a year now. And, and what's really struck me about Inward Ministry is the amount of time that these women spent in prayer before they ever went into a single club on Bourbon Street. It, it got to the point of bothering me. <laughs> it got to the point of, you say you're going to do this, go, go go do something. But these ladies who were much wiser <laughs> than, than myself, they said, no, we need more time in prayer. We know that if we do not devote ourselves to prayer, there is no chance that we could present the gospel where we're going to go. And, and that so impacted um, my life and, and Amanda's life that a few months ago, when we began the adoption process, as much as we just wanted to jump in there, fill out the application, get it sent in, we'd seen these ladies with inward ministry, and we knew there's no way we're jumping into this without being devoted to prayer. And so we asked friends to set aside a couple of weeks to pray with us before we ever started the adoption process, and because we did that, our friends who are starting the adoption process are also setting aside times of prayer, before they begin. And we found that for the gospel to go forth, to be involved in what God is doing, to take his name to the world, it begins by being devoted to prayer. And Paul was very aware of this. Paul took the gospel into brand new places. He took the gospel into places where he was going to be thrown into prison, where he was going to be beat. You don't go to places like that without wanting someone to pray for you, without knowing that you need someone to pray for you. Let's back up for a second. Why is prayer necessary for the gospel to go forth? Why is prayer necessary for the gospel to go forth? Paul gives us the answers here. Here's the first reason. He says, pray for us too that God may open a door for us. The first reason that prayer was necessary for Paul is because he knew that his message, what he had to say, did no good unless God opened the door for that message to be heard. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about how the God of this world, the God of this world who has set himself up as the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. And it's only when God opens our eyes that we're able to see the beauty of the gospel. Acts 13, we hear that God opened Lydia's heart so that she could have faith. The reality is that we can, we can proclaim the gospel all we want. We can come to church on Sunday morning but unless God opens a door for the gospel, it does no good. And that's so hard, because sometimes God doesn't open the doors that we expect him to open. And sometimes God opens the doors that we don't want to walk through with the gospel. And sometimes God delays opening the doors when we want the gospel, gospel to be reclaimed clearly right now. Um, some of you are probably like Amanda and I, and you have, you have family members who are not believers, and you're tugging on the door as hard as you can. And, and you're proclaiming the gospel as clearly and as passionately as you know. And you want to grab someone and, and shake them and say, don't you, don't you see the beauty of Christ and the power of the gospel? And it's just, it's just not happening. And we're reminded that we need to pray. And that we need to know that God is the one who opens doors for the gospel. Not only that, but Paul says at the end of verse 4, So that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. If the gospel made a lot of sense, (laughs) or if the gospel, the message about Jesus was easy, no need to pray. But the reality is that the gospel of Christ is, in some sense, a mystery. Not only that, but you are telling someone you're a sinner, you're separated from God. Not a good way to begin your message if you're trying to sell something to someone. It's it's a mystery that we are separated from God by our sins, but through Christ, through someone who lived two thousand years ago that seems irrelevant to people, through Him, we have reconciliation with the Creator God of the universe. It's a mystery. It's something that if we just walk out randomly and tell someone on the street, not going to make a lot of sense. Only through prayer, only through the power of God at work in that person's life does the gospel begin to take hold. And then Paul says in verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. I've always struggled with with this particular phrase um, in in Colossians. What's Paul saying here? Is is he afraid he's going to mess up the words? Um, Because that's my fear a lot of times in sharing my faith. What What if I screwed this up? What if, I, what if I say the wrong words when I'm trying to tell somebody about Jesus? Is that what Paul is saying here? I don't think entirely. I, sure, that's a concern. I mean, you don't want to go out and tell somebody about Jesus and get confused and, you know, it, it sound like a goofball. That's not what we're going after. But I think when he says, proclaim it clearly as I should, I think he's saying, let me proclaim it um, purely and genuinely. In other words, as we read through Paul's letters, one of Paul's concerns is deceit or, or, or untruth seeping into the message of, of the gospel. And more than messing up a couple of words, I think proclaim it clearly is Paul wants to present the gospel as genuinely as possible. He doesn't want to fool someone. He doesn't want to bait and switch someone. He doesn't want to miscommunicate The power of the gospel. That's what he's most concerned about here. And he's asking people to pray. Pray that I do not fool this person that I'm proclaiming the gospel to. For far too long in churches, we've made the gospel ABC, 123, this is easy, you can get this. Yes, the gospel is simple. Yes, a child can understand it. But we have to be so careful that we don't send a mixed message. That we don't send a message of the gospel is easy, Christian life is easy, come and just have it if you want it. That's what Paul is scared of. That is what he wants to proclaim clearly. He wants to proclaim the power of the gospel clearly. And so if we say that Jesus is Savior and Lord, we will devote ourselves in prayer that the gospel would would go forth. Here's the second thing, verse verse 5. Be careful in the way you act toward outsiders. Be wise, actually, it says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Here's a question that we need to ask ourselves here. Who are the outsiders? <laughs> who, who is Paul talking about when he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders? We have to remember that, that the church that Paul is writing this letter to, the church at Colossae, is probably a very small group. In, in fact, much, much smaller than we are gathered here this morning. And so to them, the outsiders would have been those around them in the city of Colossae who were not a part of their group. Now you say, that's, that's very simple. Why, why would you take time to explain that? The reason I explain that is sometimes we hear the word outsiders and we think strangers. Or even worse, we hear the word outsiders and we think don't have anything to do with them. <laughs> those people are out there, We're in here, don't have anything to do with them. The problem is, that's not how Jesus lived his life, is it? (laughs) Jesus spent time with the outsiders. He got in trouble with the religious leaders because he hung out at parties. And he went to the house of those who were outside. Paul's expectation, the reason that he would say, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, is because he expected them to interact with the outsiders. He expected them to spend time with people who were not a part of their group. And so we have to remember what Paul is saying here is not avoid those people who are not part of the church. He's saying spend time with them. These are the people that you work with, the people you go to school with, the people in your family who are not a part of God's family but you interact with on a daily basis. How do we act toward them? We act wisely toward them. Now we have to remember, this is very important. When we see the word wisdom, or we see the idea of acting wisely in Scripture, it, it carries two um, related meanings. There, there, in other words, there's kind of two types of wisdom, but, but they're closely related. The first type of wisdom is practical wisdom. In other words, don't be dumb. <laughs> don't, don't do something foolish. Just be, just be wise in the way that you act toward people because we want them to hear clearly the message that we have to proclaim. Just just be wise. But there's also another type of wisdom, there's spiritual wisdom. And this is the tension, this is the difficulty we face, is spiritual wisdom means that we walk according to God's word, and we walk according to God's spirit, and God's spirit, at times, may lead us to do something that is not wise by worldly standards. We have already had several people advise us that, that adopting a child right now is not wise. Thank you for your input. We, we appreciate that. Um, but we are hoping to follow spiritual wisdom. A- and we feel like God's word and God's spirit is leading us in this direction. And so the reality is, is that when we interact with people, sometimes we will do something that is spiritually wise, but may not be wise practically or, or according to the ways of the world. Here's the danger we face. Sometimes people will say, I was just being a fool for Christ. No, you were just being a fool. You weren't being a fool for Christ. You were just being foolish in the way you were acting toward people, and you hindered the spread of the gospel. Other times, people are foolish. They do foolish things because God is truly leading them to do that. One of the best examples I've heard recently is listening to a sermon from Crosspoint back in June. Um... I forget her name. I think the lady's name was Mandy, and she had spent time in East Asia, and she talked about how they were, when they were in their hotel room, they had to be wise. They had to be practically wise, not to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, but the missionaries were encouraging them that at some point, you're going to have to be spiritually wise. God's Spirit is going to lead you to proclaim the gospel in a dangerous situation, and so Paul, when he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, it's worldly wisdom but it's worldly wisdom that is trumped by spiritual wisdom when God leads us in that direction. So be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Um, some translations, I don't remember which ones, but some translations will say redeeming the time or redeeming the opportunity. This idea of cashing in <laughs> on this opportunity. You have a chance to interact with somebody. You have a chance to, to share the gospel with them or you have a chance to be around them. Make the most uh, of that opportunity. John Piper has written a book called Don't Waste Your Life. That's really the easiest way I know to sum up this little phrase. Don't waste your life. Don't waste the opportunities that you have to interact with people who are not a part of God's family. How, here's a question that I ask myself. How can we know that we've made the most of an opportunity? Yesterday morning, I feel like I, I, I missed out on an opportunity. We're at Sam's in the, in the checkout line, and our kids are starting to break down. Now, you can never imagine this happening, but uh, we're in line checking out, and our kids are breaking down on us. Um, but there's a really nice gentleman, younger guy, who's checking us out, who's interacting with our kids. You know what my goal at that moment was? To get through the line. Just check the items out, man. We do you not see what our kids are doing? Like they're on the floor, they're they're hitting each other. We just have to get out of this place. And, and I felt like in some way I missed an opportunity. Because God had put this person in, in our path, and, and I didn't make the most of that opportunity. We can probably all think of times in our life we just need to get through this experience. And God is saying, No, make the most of this opportunity. How can we know we made the most of the opportunity? A couple of things. Did you point the person toward Jesus? Now, I'm not saying, did you proclaim the entire gospel to that person? In other words, at that moment in Sam's yesterday, I wasn't making it through the Roman road. It it just wasn't going to happen. Like, we weren't going to make it through the whole gospel presentation. But I could have done something to point that person toward Jesus. Are, Are we doing that? Are we giving hope to someone? Have you ever had an interaction with someone and you felt like, I'm ready to face the day because of what that person said or what that person did? I think when we make the most of every opportunity, we give hope to someone. We point them ahead, hoping that the next person they interact with will tell them about Christ. That's what it means to make the most of every opportunity. And so Paul says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And then look what he says in verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I'm not sure we should make too much out of this, but you'll notice that verse five was about what, our conduct, the way we act. Verse six is about what, the things that we say. I I, I think there's something purposeful that Paul placed conduct before speech. Because a lot of times, if we don't act wisely to board, toward people, if we don't make the most of every, every opportunity, we're not going to have the opportunity to speak to them. Conduct often comes before speech. So like I said, I'm not sure if we should make too much out of that, if Paul intended that, but I do think it's interesting that he, that he presents them in that order. What does he say about our speech? He says, let your conversation be always full of grace. The word grace we want to be careful in getting sucked into word studies and doing root words and making too much out of that. But the word grace comes from a word that means joy. And to give grace, grace is all about giving something. So when we speak in a way that is full of grace, I think that means that we speak in a way that gives joy, that gives life, that gives hope to someone. In other words, gracious talk gives to someone, and it gives something good to that person. Have you ever talked to someone or you have a conversation with someone and it just drains the life out of you? Um, don't think of anybody in your mind. But, uh, but, but sometimes we, ha- we have friends or, or we, we have conversations and they're just, they just beat people down and they have nothing good to say about anything. And you're just, oh, it just sucks the life out of you. That is not gracious speech. Gracious speech speaks life and hope and joy into someone's life. It doesn't suck the life out of someone. Paul says, let your conversation be full of grace. And then he describes this. What does it mean to be full of grace? It means to be seasoned with salt. Um, I couldn't help but put in the notes that our language should be salty. Um, It was just too easy. You guys know that salty language... During, during college football season, your language is salty probably sometimes. But uh, salty language is not what we're going after here. Conversation that is seasoned with salt. What do we do when we run into a phrase like this um, in Scripture and we don't know what to do? Uh, one good question is to ask, how would the original audience have heard this? What, have, what would they have made of salt? And then a second question that we always want to ask, and I found this particularly helpful in just in personal Bible study. As you're reading through scripture, if you get confused by a phrase, a good question to ask yourself is, what would the opposite of this be? Because a lot of times, if we can figure out what the opposite of a phrase would have been, then that would help us get a little bit closer to what the meaning of the phrase is. So, and, and just to let you know, I think one of the best examples of this was, was Kevin's sermon last week. When we're dealing with a very difficult phrase or a difficult verse like, like Kevin was dealing with last week, if we can get our arms around what the opposite of that would look like, it gets a little bit closer to living out what Scripture is all about. And so when, when we see something like seasoned with salt and we don't know what to do with that phrase in Scripture, we can ask ourselves, what would the difference be? Well, the difference would be bland <laughs> or, or bitter or, or tasteless. That would be conversation that was not seasoned with salt. Once again, you may, you may know people who have very bland <laughs> conversations. You're like, all right, let's, let's spice it up a little bit here. Let's, let's add a little bit to this, to this conversation, to this relationship. One, one illustration of, of this that I was very convicted of early in marriage is how you tell your how we got together story. Um, in, in a very guy sort of way, How we got together was, we went to college together, you know, we were friends for a while, we got engaged when we were seniors, really liked her, got married, it's been fantastic. All right. and then Amanda tells the story, and it goes for 45 minutes, and it starts with the initial conversation. And then she throws in a story that I don't remember, but I know I was a part of. And then she begins to expand this, and what I told in 30 seconds, in what seemed like a perfectly good way, She's turned into this incredible 45-minute presentation that's full of salt and full of grace. And, and I, was, I, I, I thought about that in the sense of, how do we speak about Jesus? How do we speak about the gospel? Does it come across as bland? God forbid that we make the gospel bland. I was reading through a, a, a blog this, this last week, and I came across a quote that I want to read to you. Here's what the gentleman said. He said, he's talking about Christians. He, he's writing from a Christian perspective. He says, we've got the truth portion down when it comes to propositions. In other words, we've got the right answers. What is needed is a beautiful and compelling portrait of truth. God is inherently beautiful, but many times we don't do well at drawing out the inherent beauty of truth. And I think that's something that, that we face. We have the right answers. We're on the winning side, but you would never know it. <laughs> By the, by the way we talk about it. Our, our conversation is not gracious. It, it's not full of salt. And then look at the last thing. So that you may know how to answer everyone. The reason we want to be gracious, the reason that we want to have conversation seasoned with salt is so that we can know how to answer everyone. The danger that comes sometimes in talking with people who are not believers is that we used a canned presentation. <laughs> Notice that Paul says that you may know how to answer everyone and not making a big deal out of going back to, back to Greek. But if we went back and we looked at the Greek language, the word one is emphasized here. In other words, the way I speak to one person is not the way I'll speak to another person. We can always see somebody with a canned presentation coming. And we run the other direction thinking, oh my goodness, they just told that to the person down the street and now they've stopped at my house. Don't want anything to do with that. Paul says, let your conversation be full of salt so that you will know how to answer every single person. This is how First Peter says it. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence. We need to have conversation full of salt so that we will know how to speak to everyone who comes into our life. The guy in Sam's that I passed up yesterday, I would speak to him in one way, and I might speak to someone at the gas station this afternoon in a completely different way. But always it's done in a gracious and full of salt sort of way. Now, we want to make a big deal out of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. It shows up in the way that we pray. It shows up in the way we act. It shows up in the way that we talk. What do we do with that? How, how do we kind of draw that to a conclusion? Well, in your note sheet, I wrote some perfectly good questions. You can put your note sheet up now. They're good questions. I hope you read them later. Um, but, but, but I've decided to go in a little bit different direction. All of my questions that I wrote down have I do I know do I know they're all individualistic questions and as I went back and read Colossians 4 2 through 6 this week all of the pronouns are plural (laughs) in other words Paul is not talking just individualistically here he's talking to a group and he says be devoted to prayer be wise in the way you act speak in a way that's gracious he's not just saying that to individuals He's saying that to a group of believers, to a church. And so here's what I want to ask us in in, in conclusion is cross point. Not individual setting next to you, but cross point. Are you devoted to prayer? Are you acting wisely to the people who live around you? Are you as a body making the most of every opportunity that comes your way? Is your conversation, is your message as a church gracious and full of salt and providing an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have within you? It's an individual question, but it's also a church question. It's also a group question. And here's one other thing. If we back up to Colossians chapter four verse one, Paul has just talked to the masters. In other words, the leaders. Men, older men, deacons, elders, people who lead Crosspoint, are you devoted to prayer? Are you wise in the way you act? Is your conversation gracious? When Paul is saying these things, it's not just this random, I hope somebody's out there listening. It's is our body taking on these characteristics for the spread of the gospel. And I know of no better way for a body as a unity, as a whole, To proclaim the gospel in this way than to do what? Take the Lord's Supper together. How great that we have a chance to do that together this morning. That when we come together, not individuals taking the Lord's Supper, but coming together as a body in unity saying that we are going to proclaim the message of Christ in this way. We're living out what Paul is talking about. We're making a big deal out of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so we are going to conclude this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to pray for us, and then Kevin's going to come up, and those who are leading out are going to come up. But know that this is an expression of doing the things that Paul was calling the church at Colossae to do. Let's pray. God, we want to be a people, just like you were teaching the people at Colossae, we want to be a people who know what it is for Jesus to be Lord and Savior. We throw that phrase around, we talk about it, we use it in gospel presentations. But if Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior, that will show up in the way that we pray, that will show up in the way that we act, that will show up in the way that we talk. God, may this be a people, may we be a people who live this way. And now, God, we want to proclaim the gospel of Christ by taking communion together by coming together, celebrating Jesus, and celebrating the salvation that we have in him. Thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit at work among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.